Hello, everybody, and welcome back. So welcome back to this last episode of MHNR 2020. Um, we really hope you can hear us. Um, if you can't, please tweet us, because that's how we found out last time. <laughs> We're a very professional organisation. This is the Mental Health Ways, just to get back up and keep going. And I think, if anything, this conference has really, really epitomised kind of the best of mental health. I've really loved the fact that so many people have got a chance to show their presentations or online if you're seeing ideas that interest you or motivate you, please check them out because that's how we grow and learn. I think it's really important that we do that. Um, and again, we'll have a panel discussion. Tonight, we're talking about older adults and end-of-life care, something that's incredibly important for us in, in mental health. I think COVID took us a little bit by surprise, as it did everybody, in terms of the fact that the types of, of end-of-life we normally deal with are sudden and quite shocking in mental health when they do happen. And this has been a very different experience for a lot of us, and we've had to re re recalibrate and retool our experiences. But also there's been a creeping change that maybe we haven't all been aware of as well, where the demographic changes has meant that we need to think very differently about the kind of care that we give, particularly towards the end of people's lives. Um, the, the other thing about this conference that I've really loved, and I think the rest of the, the presenters will agree, is this um, fact that you guys have been there the whole time, um, encouraging us, supporting us, watching us, and just it just made it so much easier to do and so much more fun. So really big thank you for that. And I'm just going to hand over now to Vanessa, who is going to be able to tell you how you can join in on this last one. And feel free to rib us for the audio difficulties. It's really not a problem. <laughs> Vanessa. Thank you, Nikki. Yeah, so if you can hear me, which you may or may not be able, hopefully you can. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about how you can follow us tonight. So if you're on um, Facebook Live, hopefully, um, if you follow the Unite MHNA Facebook page, you should see the live stream. As Nikki says, if you can't hear it, if we have any more technical problems, you know, do bear with us, um, tweet us, let us know as well. Um but hopefully um, everything will be running as normal now and you can join in the conversation by um, adding any comments on the Facebook page or you can go over to Twitter as well. Um, if you're on Twitter, it's MHNR2020 as the hashtag tonight. You can follow the conversation or you can ask us questions or a bit of both. We'd like to hear from you. Um, I think, as Nikki says, the audience is what's made this really. Um, for me, having attended MHNR a few years ago, the physical event, um, and you know, I was quite blown away by how much I learned from it that day. But also had a sense that if only this could be more accessible to mental health nurses on the wards and that kind of thing, I often don't get time out. So this year, I think it's been a really great opportunity to extend the sort of exclusivity of it and for you all to be able to join in um, to what's been a free event. We've all put it together um, for free and um, and if you just tune in and at the end you can also go over onto the um, Facebook page look at the videos you can look at YouTube we'll post lots of links to um, to the two weeks of events and obviously we'll be back as well next week with MHTV so I'll leave it there and I'll hand over to am I handing over to Ben tonight or me? To make. <laughs> to make, to make, but thank you very much, Liz Collier, for confirming you can, in fact, hear. You may regret that when we all get going because it's going to be a good one tonight. But I think let's hear from the panel. Mick, are you going to take us through? Yeah, I'd just like to agree with what everyone said up to now. I think the whole series of events have been absolutely fantastic. We've had a little bit of a glitch tonight, but, but what the heck. And I think I'm really pleased to be involved in tonight's show. I mean, it's closer to my own age demographic for one. 
but also I think you know what we're talking about here is a relatively neglected field of research and arguably a neglected area of practice as well and it really shouldn't be and I think we've got three great researchers on tonight who are passionate about making a difference in that regard so I want to come to each of them in turn and I'll take them in the turn in, in turn in relation to the order that I watch the um the videos in so I'm going to go to Ben first so Ben can you tell us a little bit about yourself a little bit about your study and what you think are the important issues within it Thanks, Mick. Uh, my name is Ben Hannigan. I'm a mental health nursing academic at Cardiff University, and I'm here to discuss tonight uh, an evidence synthesis that was funded by the National Institute for Health Research in the area of end of life care for people with severe mental health problems. And Mick, you were saying that we might be talking tonight about things that are, that are neglected. Well, this is a really neglected area. We really don't know much at all about how end of life care for people who live a life with diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, for example, you really know very little about, little about how that's organised, how it's experienced or how it could be improved. Right, thanks, Ben. And th the important stuff there, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of it as we go along. And we're probably going to ask you a bit about how you found out what you found out, what sort of methods you've used. But I want to turn to Gwen next, and Gwen's subject is, is close to my heart. So I, I used to work for a little while in dementia care services. <coughs> And both my parents have, have had dementia. So, but I sort of care is interesting in that as well. And Gwen's explored, well, let you tell us yourself, Gwen, what you've been doing, a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your study and what you think the main issues are. Thanks, Mick. I'm Gwen McIntosh and I'm a senior lecturer at University of Stirling up in Scotland. Um, and um, this study was part of my PhD. Um, and my background is working with um, families and family caregivers and um, I was always quite fascinated with why um, men appeared to reach out for a different type of support so I wanted to um, explore this really under-researched um, uh, group of people so um, previous research seemed to always focus on um, carers as a just a homogenous group and I wanted to find out more about um, the, the male's perspective caring for a partner with, with dementia. Um, so I think it's um, been really enlightening for me um, as, a, as a relatively new researcher um, but also really interesting in relation to mental health nursing and interventions that would um, support the well-being of men. Right, thanks Gwen and again some really important issues there and we'll, we'll come back to some of them at greater length as we go along. And I'm really pleased to have Doug McInnes on the on this show. Um, similarly, I think we both share a background in secure mental health services. And if if you don't mind me saying, Doug, I think if there was a mafia in a good way of of secure care researchers, we'd have you as one of the godfathers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Mick. I'm not sure how I actually respond to that, to be honest, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Doug McInnes, uh, um, mental health, health nurse academic from uh, Canterbury Christchurch University. And as Mick said, I, 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 a lot of my research is focused on, on people in secure settings. And the, the research I'm going to hopefully be talking about tonight is a, a series of studies that we're we've carried out with a number of colleagues in relation to older people and their access and engagement in uh, secure mental health settings and the reason why i think it's important and i think that as was mentioned by both ben and gwen that it's a very under um researched under um 
there's a lack of references a lot for a lot of things in relation to older people in mental health settings. But in secure mental health settings, I think when they were initially set up, they were set up very much for younger people. And the services and the skills and the ways in which um, uh, the procedures that were involved in secure mental health services were very much geared towards people who were physically healthy, were actually cognitive, didn't have any cognitive deterioration. And so it was very much related to mental health and potentially some of the risks of surrounding um, behaviours. It didn't look at some of the needs of older people. And what has happened is actually, as secure services have developed, the numbers going into secure services or insecure services that are over 50 has moved from something like 5% in the you know 1980s to something like 25% now. And so they're a much bigger group and, and they're a very under-researched and unknown group as well. So that's why I think they're important to look at. So thanks, Doug. And I think, you know, what I hear you saying there, and, I, and in, in line with, with both Ben and Gwen, is that these aren't just research and practice issues. There's sort of big, profound moral and ethical and policy issues at stake with a lot of these topics. So I'm sure we'll come back to some of that stuff. It, it also strikes me, having watched the various presentations on video, that there's, in some sense, a psychosocial thread running through all of them different in different ways for each for each study but maybe if i come to each of you in turn again and ask if you could expand on what might be the key psychosocial issues so how about you ben for starters i i would i would push that further mick actually and say um i don't want to say biopsychosocial but phys, phys, that's a which is an, that's an overused word isn't it but but we've also got the physical as well as the psychological and social in our end of life care because our, our evidence synthesis sat right at the interface of two different bits of the healthcare system. So the bit of the health and social care system that is geared up to um, support people and their families in their expected last year of life. And then that the other kind of health and social care system which certainly I'm a lot more familiar with, and we we on the panel probably are all much more familiar with, which is the bit of the health and social care system which supports people who live with um, long-term, often quite disabling mental health problems, where people might have diagnoses like, for example, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, and, and what we found, what we found despite all the kind of things that we hear about around things like parity of esteem, that people who live with long-term mental health problems should have access to all the same kinds of high quality services care that people with physical health problems have is is that this is a huge gap you know they first of all we don't know much about how psychological and social and physical care is provided to people with long-term mental health problems who are reaching the end of their lives in the uk i think i think of the of the studies that we of the research studies we included in our evidence synthesis I think only three of them actually been conducted in the UK. So, and, and none of those had particularly set out to um, investigate how services could be improved, you know, psychologically, socially, or physically. So it's a really, you know, it's a huge, this is a really big area, but we know nothing about it at all. And it, and it definitely has to address all these kind of three big areas of need, you know, the, the, the bodily, the the, the mental well-being, the psychological, and and the social and the family. Fantastic, Ben. And I suppose what I picked up as well is is we 
once you have those issues for, for individuals and, and you locate them within services, they do touch the other people who are in, you know, the index clients' lives. Um, you also mentioned parity of esteem, esteem, and I think that's one of these, you know, almost a slogan. And I, I, I'm interested in the gap between the policy rhetoric and the reality on the ground. And, and I, I don't know whether you want to expand on that a little yeah, bit now. I can, I can do, because uh, I think one of the things that was a little bit unusual about our evidence synthesis, um, because, because a lot of evidence syntheses or um, a lot of systematic reviews, all they'll include by design will be research studies and we cast a much wider net than that so we included research studies but it but from the beginning we said let's also include things like case studies and let's also include things like policy documents and guidelines now we limited that bit of our search just to uk policies and guidelines um because it would be too it would have been too big a task to try to get us and australian and goodness knows what else policies and guidelines in the review but there is a gap there's a really Policy for end-of-life care says that everybody, irrespective of diagnosis, should have access to high-quality care in their expected last year of life. So the policy direction, the rhetoric across all four countries of the UK is really, really, really clear. But in this particular group of people, so people who've lived a life with a long-term mental health problem, um, so not we excluded people with dementia, so people who've lived a life with, for example, bipolar disorder, um, this is such an underserved, underprioritized, underknown group. It's such an, that's, we just, it's, for researchers, it's a wide open area. For researchers who want to then help improve services, it's a really, really important area, you know, in, into which hopefully more people will move. And we can work. I need to, make. I should stop, shouldn't I? Lest, lest I. No, I think you've <laughs> ended the, the, You've concluded your statement with a really interesting point there about, you know, the, the, re, the research isn't just for its own sake, it's about, hopefully improving services so so we may come back to that as well and it might be the the sort of work that you're doing there that's often unsung like reviewing the literature that's already out there it is a really important part of that ways in which we marshal the evidence and, and make things better in, in the long run so uh, we, we, we want we see the evidence synthesis as being the beginning of a program of research yeah. Yeah. fantastic right so i want to come to gwen and like i said i think i've got some personal and practice knowledge here that 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 sort of shouts out to me that that the family issues are really crucial in the context of, of dementia care. And I think what you've done, Gwen, is very nicely look at you know differences within that, particularly differences if, if the if the main carer is a man rather than a woman. So could you tell us how you see the psychosocial issues and maybe how they stack out in relation to gender roles in, in your Absolutely. study? Yeah, um, for me, I suppose, I'm just sort of thinking about that, the sense of psychological and social elements that they came through in my study. I think from a psychological perspective, the kind of raw emotion that, that um, came through in the in interviews with the men that I had where it was really, um, really kind of, had an impact on me and 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 just listening to um, them talking about their experiences of particularly around loss um, and loss of of their their partner, loss of the relationship, loss of that of that um, common shared history, um, really really came through from from the men. And from a social perspective, I think um, 
again, this was an area really, really quite fascinating was because so much of it was fixed around role and identity um, and how I'd taken on a, a caring role shifted the way they thought about themselves um, and also was very much related to their sense of responsibility and their sense of duty in relation to um, being in a partnership relationship um, and also um, how that then fitted with their experiences again of loss. So in this time, loss of role, loss of work um, and loss of other aspects of their life that that contributed to their sense of identity. So I think absolutely that the, the um, psychosocial elements really came came through quite strongly in the, in, in the research. Thanks, Anna. I suppose I hear from what from what you've said just then as well, Gwen, there's a, there's a certain amount of upset in the lives of the people that you're interviewing that may reveal itself in the course of you conducting an interview with somebody, which then might be quite upsetting for you as a, as a researcher. So, so you, you touch on reflexive issues in your presentation. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, Julie. I think I didn't really anticipate the kind of emotional um, experience of hearing those um, narratives and those stories and those experiences and being expressed in such a really um, open manner as well. And um, I think for me personally, it was also challenging listening to older Scottish men um, who, you know, quite traditional in their in their manner. And um, you could see, you physically see them trying to kind of bolster some sort of armour to prevent this kind of outpour of emotion and and watching that and 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 being parted to that I found extremely difficult and particularly around um being a researcher and not a nurse and I found that extremely difficult um and it was something that I just didn't anticipate at all um and it, it made me really think about my role and um having that conversation and speaking to someone, listening to someone's story um, with a researcher hat on rather than a, a mental health nursing hat on where you would you'd probably take that 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 conversation into a different place and offer different um, sub avenues of support. And that was closed to me because that wasn't what I was there for. And that was a very difficult experience and something that I really relied quite heavily on my supervisory kind of group to, to work through. Because I think it's something that, that as new researchers, we don't we don't actually talk about it enough, about that, that emotional experience of, of transitioning from practitioner to researcher. So I, th I think your compassion and respect for the, your research participants com comes over loud and clear. And, um, you know, in, in that sense, it does connect back, I think, into your identity as a nurse. And that's, it's, you know, I think it's really moving hearing you talk about your research. And I, I really look forward to, to reading it when, you, when you've written it up fully. It's so fantastic. Um, so can I come to Doug now? Doug. Um, I think the psychosocial issues might be slightly different in the, the client group in the context that you're um, going to talk about. But but nonetheless, I think there may be some important issues there. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I, I think there are. And I think in a broader context, I, I think... I think firstly, just to say that in terms of networks, quite often, you know, the, the people that are um, older in secure settings have, have actually been around 
different forensic settings for quite a long time. A lot of the people we found in our survey were actually had been there for 20, 30, 40 years within different forensic settings. So undoubtedly that's actually had an impact on, on how they form relationships with members of their family and, and etc. And in a lot of ways what has happened is actually by proxy staff and peers within those settings have actually taken on some of the roles and some of the friendships. So there's, so there's, there's a, a lot of that that actually happens within the, the environment. And I think the environment is a very important aspect of what, what we see as in that that actually replaces a lot of what you would, a lot of the, the, the support you would get in, in normal family situations or, or, or outside in the community. And so there is a, so the, the, the notion of place and how important place is in terms of the care and treatment is, 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 is quite manifest within the work that we've been done. And I think what we've also found in, in a, a previous study is one of the difficulties is because there's very few places there are for people who are older, um, um, and, and uh, have a forensic history because you have the mental health needs, physical health needs, cognitive deterioration, and ri potential risk. It means that actually choice is is virtually non-existent either for um, for the for the users themselves or if they have family members for family members as well. And actually, that that creates anxiety. It cre creates frustration. It creates um, the sense as well that at times people have to be, would be placed or would be be looking to be placed in in situations and in locations and environments that are really not right for them and for their needs and actually are not something that they they want to go to as well. So there's a lot lots of issues around and I and I think the issue about environment is a is a very big issue because I think that with all those needs, A, there's very few places that where that people have the skills to be able to to maybe help people, but also as well, it means that people quite often will be placed in situations and environments that they don't want and are really not good for their for their you know their care and their treatment and their and their future. Mm. So I think there's a, there's quite lots you're telling us about here, Doug, and, it, and I suppose at least some of it reveals for me why research is so important because if there wasn't research that was nuanced like this. We might just assume that it's just getting out of secure units is is the only thing that that matters to people. And you hear you telling us that maybe because of the the way people have developed relationships and the, and the way that peer relationships develop, that getting out of the secure units for for this client group is is something of a mixed blessing. Well, I I think there are there are there are a number of fa factors around that, but part but definitely when we we carried out a, a qualitative piece of work before, and the actual process of people moving or transitioning out was quite traumatic for a lot of them. A, they wouldn't have a clear sense of where they were going and quite often moves would happen very quickly. Secondly, they would have very little choice and they'd have there'd be very little you know they're, they're preferences would be quite often 
overridden might be strong, a too strong a term, but definitely they they wouldn't be seen as a priority when you know in terms of uh, the, those transitions. So quite and and so quite often they they would also be moved quite quickly. So therefore, their ability to talk to people that they had known and respected and had really positive relationships with um, to say goodbye to actually to to be able to sort of work through that process of leaving was denied them. Yeah, so the other thing that you said as well, Doug, was the importance of place and understanding yeah. place. And I think for me, for, for all the stuff that I read about mental health, some of the most exciting and interesting and illuminating writing at the moment is coming out of human geography and people who are writing about really important issues that, that develop when we consider the places in which care goes on or the places in which care is neglected. Um, so I wonder whether we could turn to, to both Ben and Gwen now. And, and I think it, in your study, Ben, there's a, there's a really important issue around the right place to die. Yeah, I, 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 this was exactly coming into my head, Mick, as I was hearing your and Doug's discussion and the importance of place and the importance of the environment. So when when it came to um, when it came to our theming of the of the research and the policy and the guidance and the case studies that we had included in our evidence synthesis, so we we did a whole theming. And one of the sub themes that we had in in the kind of narrative part, the thematic part of our evidence synthesis, we gave the title "No Right." place to die. And I think actually that phrase came out of one of the, it might have come out of one of the qualitative um, papers. It might have been a quote that was cited in one of the primary research studies that we included in the in the synthesis. And um, and so we include, so we had in this theme um, examples of research where, for example, nurses were saying, well, um, care for people with long-term mental health problems at the end of life, it's, it's simply lacking everywhere. You know, it's mental health hospitals are not set up to care for people um, at the end of life. Um, you know, general medical units are not set up well to care for people who might be hearing voices, you know, whose behaviour might be kind of difficult to manage and, and challenging for medical nurses, for example. Um, hospices also are not necessarily set up or supported to care for people with psychosis, long-term mental health problems. I mean, there's no, there, there just, it, it, there's nowhere that is, that is the right place to die, let alone places where, where, which represent choice that people have made, you know, the, where I would like to die. You know, this, this is, an, which was another kind of theme that we talked about. But yeah, so place and environment is, was really big, a really big part of our study for sure. Yeah, and when I hear you all talk, I'm thinking that when we think of place and try and define different places, yes, we are talking about the built environment, and that's important in many ways, but we're actually talking about relational place and space as well, the, the quality of relationships within a place. And even the, you know, on the sort of territory that I'm really interested in, the quality of control that you might have over, over the place that you're in, the extent to which you're involved in decision making. And that was something that, that came out quite loudly in, in your project, I think, when you, you, you spoke about involvement in decision making, lack of involvement in decision making. Could, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I think um, 
uh, what came through was that men across the board felt that um, they lacked any power and influence in the decisions that were being made. And, and that wasn't necessarily just the sense of the, the decisions were made by other people. It was also that the decisions were inevitable due to dementia and the deterioration related to dementia and, and feeling like um, one um, man spoke about feeling like he was on a treadmill and that um, he had no control over the speed or where he was going or the path he was taking. It was, um, you know, other people making decisions and the and the condition itself that, that was determining the path ahead. Um, and I think that, that that was extremely difficult and very disempowering um, for the men. Um, and also there was a fear, I mean, you spoke about the kind of right environment for, for people, um, there was a fear that the, the men were, were, it was a sense of they've, they've failed in their care and role if they had to look at alternative, um, you know, care provision, um, that they um, weren't able to, to, to meet the needs of, of, of their partners. Um, they felt that that was their, their duty um, and they'd failed in that duty. And also a link linked to that was the, the fear of, of that environment and, and having even less control. Um, so if, if some their care, um, the person they were care for goes into hospital or, or a, a you know, um, nursing home type setting, then they would even have less say and less control and less influence um, on the care that they received. And that also that, that fear about the media and, the, and, and what you see in the media around, especially, um, you know, care home services and um, that fear of these environments that are, are quite negatively perceived in, in the media was was of real concern to the men as well yeah i mean it, my, my first job as a mental health nurse was in a, a a residential dementia care home and i think however much resources were put in then and i think there were probably more resources than to make the place as homely as and welcoming as possible most of the families who were involved in the place it was their last resort and and to be honest with them a lot of the things that had prompted admission were when the a sole carer usually a spouse who was also elderly had sort of worked themselves you know into the ground caring on their own and that had then necessitated the the admission was was that part of of your findings as well, Gwen? Yeah, it was, and um, and I think that um, desire to contain to care independently and not depend on other people was really strong. And again, I think that was really linked to to gender and role and identity, um, and they very much um, because of this intense feeling of of um, lack of control they then pushed people back. So whether it be family members, children, other uh, wider families and service providers, they would push them back because that allowed them to protect that, that space within the house and keep um, caring continuing, even when their own health was deteriorating significantly. And three of the men went on to have you know, considerable health um, problems you know, fairly, fairly clearly related to the stress of, and physical demands of caring, um, which then resulted in, in respite care and, and one for long-term care. So absolutely, um, I think that, that their own health needs was pushed to, to the bottom um, of, of, you know, the priority list and um, also that 
unhelpful interactions with um, staff and um, key people, GPs, nurses, social care staff, social work, um, those initial interactions were really key um, because if they didn't go well and they were seen as unhelpful, then the, the care are often um, then isolated and, and, and didn't engage in services. So I suppose what we might hope for in terms of the impact of your work, Gwen, is that if people become more conscious of these more nuanced issues, we might do a better job of, of helping people actually receive support rather yeah. than push it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so are we doing, Nikki, for questions from the audience? Have we, have we got any? You're on mute. Such a professional. Um, uh, we've got one from Vanessa, I think. Um, she, there's somebody on um, Facebook who's commenting at the moment. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go on then. Um, so we've got, I was just having a conversation with somebody on on Facebook then about them. We've got quite a few comments, actually. So just bear with mm. me. Um, we've got one. So Nikki Haley is talking about the fact that this is an NMC standard. And I think for a long time, we've been able to not have to address it directly. But it is something that's in the new education standards as well. And it's just going to, we're going to have to keep evolving our practice. And that's going to be something that's changing. I think that I think it's about the fact that definitely there are there are changes in the demographic and actually yeah. and in the clinical issue the clinical issues that are coming forward and I think that that's that's a big issue and I don't I, I think it's both from a nursing point of view from other allied professionals as well but also services are needing to actually think about actually how people with mental health problems do age and age you know mm. with some dignity basically mm. um i think vanessa was the conversation that vanessa was talking about which i've just read and it's very interesting yeah yeah <laughs> bringing on this idea about um mental health care in prisons and aging in prisons as yeah, well exactly. There's a couple yeah. of people are commenting on that yeah that, so I, uh, yeah, yeah i've had these uh well fairly recent clinical experience of working in prisons and um and for me, what chimes is what's been said, I think, by Mick and Ben and maybe yourself as well, about it also being about policy, um, that things need to change at policy level and commissioning level, because there are just aren't properly commissioned pathways in prison, for example, people with dementia, you know, going right back to people having memory assessments in, in prisons and staff being skilled to understand when somebody might be developing dementia, for example. Um, right through to you know the end of life care discussion there's a you know a massive inequality isn't there in prisons in this area that isn't really talked about at all particularly as people are living longer in the general population you know we forget that people are living longer in prisons as well but they're also they're also the the biggest group to be now admitted to prison i mean it's partly that's due to the the group of, of people who've had historical sex, sex offenses and been convicted and gone into prison but they are they are the biggest grouping that that, that are coming into prison that this or have been over the last mm -hmm. few years so there's a there's a, a change in the in the actual prison population that as you say doesn't seem to have been reflected in in policies and standards and actually practices mm -hmm. okay i've got a few things that were burning questions for me. I, I want to turn to, to Ben and ask him a little bit about evidence synthesis, because I'm aware that um, we may all understand what this is, but some of our audience might not. So so what is it, Ben, and why is it important? I'll, I'll answer that. Can I just, and I will promise to do that, can I just very quickly respond to what, Vanessa, you've just said? 
when, mm. when we were funded for this evidence synthesis, the, the funding body, the National Institute for Health Research said, please do this study, or we happy for, we happy for you to do this study, and can you please also make sure that you include any research on end-of-life care for people with severe mental health problems in prisons? So that was, so we looked for mm. research in that area, and we did not find a single study wow. in, the, in the English language mm. anywhere in the world, as I recall. <laughs> So that's so there we are. And an and evidence then to answer your question, make an evidence synthesis maybe makes it easy for me to say something like that with a reasonable degree of confidence. Because what mm -hmm. we did, what in an, in an evidence synthesis, you try to find pretty much, I mean, you set your parameters, you set your boundaries, you try to find kind of as much as there is to know about your given area. So you've got to kind of, you've got to really focus your questions very carefully. It really helps to work with an information specialist, which we did in this study. So you have all sorts of very kind of carefully worked out search terms and you search lots and lots and lots and lots of databases. Um, and then you end up with, we had thousands, literally thousands of citations. So we had lots and lots of titles of research reports and lots of, and we included policy documents so we had to search online for those. And then you've got the, 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 and you can't kind of shortcut this, the job of considering, well, do they meet the criteria? Do they, are they in, are they out? And sometimes you have to discuss that with two or even three people. And eventually you kind of filter it down to this much smaller number of research papers, typically research papers, maybe other things too, like in our study. And then you do things like you assess the quality of the research. So, so, if you've got 100, we had 104 items. So of the research items in our 104 publications, was it good research? You know, does it kind of meet quality standards? You know, is it something what you want to recommend to students to read as good examples of how research should be done? And then, and then when you've done that, then we started thematically synthesized. So then we looked at so looked at the content. So what are the people saying in these research studies? And it was through that that we ended up with themes like um, the structure of the system, like no like no right place to die. So, so an evidence synthesis allows you to, you know, it really, it gives you, it's, it's like a literary review with knobs on, basically. Yeah, so, so what I like about it, Ben, is that, do you know when evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine was first forced upon the world, there seemed to be quite a simplistic view of what counted as good evidence. Yeah. And it was usually, if it wasn't a randomized controlled trial, it didn't count. Yes. And yet in our field, and it's, and especially listening to you all tonight, mm -hmm. lots of this territory that we're researching is so complicated that you would spoil it or yes. alter it too much by, by subjecting it to trial-based design studies necessarily. So I'm not saying trials are rubbish, but what I am saying is that the synthesis approach respects other evidence equally and allows you to draw conclusions across a continuum of methodologies, not just singular methodologies. And I think you need to be applauded for, for, for taking that, that approach. And it, it then allows us to neatly turn to, to Gwen and Doug for a comment on the, the value and appreciation for qualitative methods, maybe the particular qualitative methods you've both used. So if we turn to Gwen first, maybe? Yep, um, well, I used... Um, um, IPA, um, so in terms of phenomenological analysis, and and I, um, that really resonated with me, and and just how, 
and how I interacted with the with the data and how the um, the analysis was un, was undertaken and and also um, you know just going back to the previous point about that kind of researcher engagement in it and recognizing that you 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 are going to influence and 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 interpret based on what you know and understand about the concepts that you're exploring and and it's not about um saying that that's right or wrong it's just about saying it is that that is part of the process and 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 bringing that to the surface and exposing that and being transparent about it rather than um, than trying to to cut it away and and and, and remove it because the risks of, of doing that from for my study, I feel, is that you you then lose that that um, that fine detail and you lose that that real personal story, that personal narrative that you've been part of in that in that research interview. Yeah, and what you've done using that methodology is is to really hone in on and respect and privilege the actual lived experience of the people you've you've spoken to. And the meaning that they make out of their own experiences. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and I think as well, and just even hearing and listening back to the interviews, even after the analysis phase, and, and just you can hear the men making sense of their experiences as they're talking mm -hmm. through it. And, and that's that, that that's a really unique and really kind of privileged experience to have. Cheers. So using one of my favourite metaphors, we're, we're actually getting last orders called on us. So... Doug, I'm going to turn to you. If you've got a brief comment about the value of qualitative methodology, please give us it. But also, I'm going to turn to you all in turn and ask for if you've got a pithy, important closing remark to make for us before we wrap up. Okay, I, I suppose on my think, um, perspective on qualitative research, I'm I'm much more of an adherent to mixed methods because I think there's a and, and based on whatever the question is that you can get a much more rounded view from both a quantitative and a, and a qualitative perspective to, and hopefully combine the two. So that would be my pithy comment on that. In relation to the, the pithy comment about um, about my work, I think what it's showing is that there is a massive gap in the skills base and the service provision for a particular group of people at the moment, and that is people who are growing older in secure care, who are likely to become more older, more frail, have much more much more complex needs as 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 time goes on over the next few years. So therefore, there is and there is a need for actually as as practitioners to think about what are the skills that need to be you know developed for to be able to cope and to deal with them in, in a real holistic and, and human level. But also as well, what services may need to be be t taken forward in relation to this. So that's my pithy comment for you, Mick. Thanks, Doug. And I like the way you've stressed humane and humanity there. So brilliant. So so can I turn to you now, Gwen? Yep. Um, for me, I think um, a key point, I think for me, it would be we need to be better at understanding the unique experiences of individuals. Um, we talk about person-centred care. Uh, we need to extend that to families and their experiences when we're working with them to avoid um, unhelpful interactions. Thank you. And you, Ben, last word? My last word is that end-of-life care for people with severe mental health problems is a wide open area for researchers and is also an area that yeah. practitioners also I think we would we would all do well to to pay more attention to. Brilliant. So I, I think it's been a great show. 
And I think um, I've really enjoyed it. And I think we've, we've spoken about some really profound and important stuff here. So I hope the audience have, have got as much out of it as I have. Maybe for another day, my closing remark is, and I'm not looking for an answer right now, is that some of what we see in terms of the detrimental long-term health of people with mental health diagnoses may be to do with what we do to them, the treatments that we give to them. But I think I don't want to put us on a downer. Let's let's discuss that another time. So thanks very much, everybody. I think it's been a great episode. Absolutely. It has. Can we just, uh, is there anything Vanessa wanted to add before we head out? Because it's the last one, really. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the comments that we've had online tonight, we've had quite a few comments and mm. just to say to people, because we're running low on time, we will go back and look through the feed and make sure that we've answered everyone's questions. And if there are questions for particular panel members, we can, I'm sure, refer those back to people to answer. But I think the general conversation really reflects what everybody's been saying. There's a lot of comments about um, us still being in an ageist society for example, and I think that reflects some of what we said in prisons, that the prison population is neglected, but older people in prisons are neglected even more. Um, and I think, you know, what Ben said about um, there being no research in prisons um, at all in this particular area is, is pretty shocking, isn't it? So I think highlights the need for, for more research. So um, like everyone, I could say a lot more, but I'm conscious that we're drawing to a close and it's our last yeah. session. And yeah. um, and I guess, yeah, just to reflect our last session of two weeks, Nikki, isn't it? And everybody, and Absolutely. what a two weeks it's been. It's going to feel strange <laughs> next week having my evenings back, but it's been absolutely brilliant. And if you've been watching this throughout, then we hope you've got lots out of it. If you've just tuned in tonight, then have a look at all the videos that we've we've uploaded, and we will keep an eye on the Twitter feed as well over the next few days and add any comments to it there. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. Absolutely. It just yeah, remains brilliant. to say, I think, thank you to our panel who bore with us with the kind of grace and forbearance that you would expect from mental health professionals. Beautifully done. Um, and I think tonight, it hasn't gone terribly smoothly in one way, but another way, it's very mental health, isn't it? We figured out a problem and we fixed it between us. If I can't think of a better way of summing up mental health at the moment we're having to flex and change quite a lot so if you haven't been able to catch up all this absolutely go through the go through the hashtags and catch up but don't forget we're back with mhtv next week and the only thing left to say is thank you to dave who was going to be joining us tonight but obviously because we're running so short of time we can't but we can't um can't go without saying thank you very much so uh, we'll see what we can do in finding some nice embarrassing pictures of him and tweeting those out for you hopefully later on so that you can see the man behind the uh the fabulous creation that's been um this year's mhnr and nick, and nick yeah. before you sign us off nikki absolutely here here mm, so, so nick, mick you and i are here because and i'm here as a guest today but we you and i mick have been involved you know, in in the MH and our 2020 enterprise, we we're here because we're members of the conference organising committee, aren't we? So I, for me, I want to say, okay, to Dave, um, to Nikki, to Vanessa, um, setting up MHTV in it was May, wasn't it? You did this, I think. Um, through through doing that, you have you have allowed us and supported us and supported this conference to happen. And, and we are really, really, really grateful to you for that. It's a really, 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 really big deal. And you deserve oh, you. lots and lots of praise and lots and lots of thanks for that. 
Oh, that's lovely. And I think on that one, we, we, we better say goodnight to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so we can have a proper old loving and a drink. Be nice. <laughs> End of conference. So thank you very much, everybody. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Three, two, one. Welcome, Welcome to tonight's, tonight's episode of MHNR 2020. Yeah, that didn't work. No. <laughs> <laughs>